which is bringing attention to the listening process itself. In other words, watching how it is that you listen. Because everything that we hear tends to go through some kind of a filter of liking or disliking, uh, being attracted to something, being repulsed by something, different kinds of reactions all the time. And if we're not aware of the reactions, then we're not as clearly able to hear. So bringing attention to the listening process. um, In this way, we're practicing right now, aware of listening, aware of the sound, aware of the content, not just listening, listening, but, or hearing, hearing, but also um, aware of the veils in front of the mind, in front of the listening itself. And so just very open and receptive and aware. During these last few days, there's been the encouragement to be with the breath. And at times, this has been probably very difficult to do because of different kinds of energies occurring in the mind, which we get wrapped up in, and in doing so, forget about the breath. So I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the energies that arise in the mind, energies that pull us away from the breath that we tend to get quite involved in. These energies hinder or obstruct tranquility, peace, in the mind, lightness in the mind. So they're very important to come to get to know, to identify, and to see in yourself. Sometimes just identifying these particular energies can help quite a bit, help us not get quite as lost in them or or quite as afraid of them. They seem quite solid when they're happening. As we bring mindfulness and attention to them, they tend to break down, they tend to break up, and we tend to see them more clearly. So the first energy that I'm sure each one of us has encountered during these last three days is that of desire. Experiencing the mind wanting this or that. In the context of a retreat such as this where we can't really control the environment in quite the same way and satisfy our desires as much as we're able to in our our lives in general. Sometimes desire can come up very, very strongly in this context. It can range from anywhere from a a like, a mild wanting of something, to feeling quite obsessed, having to have something, feeling like you're just going to die if you don't have something. That very strong kind of 
quality within the mind. Sometimes it doesn't even have an object. Sometimes one can experience it as just wanting, just a pull, a reaching out of the mind towards something. Sometimes not even anything in particular, or not not knowing what the mind wants, but just very much in contact with this particular quality of mind, state of mind. It can feel very unpleasant, and sometimes you can feel kind of an ache in the heart, of um, emptiness, a kind of empty feeling in the heart, and a great deal of lack of contentment, not being content in the moment with what is happening. And so feeling like something else should be happening, reaching out and trying to get something, whether it's something physical or whether it's an object, whether it's a person, or whether it's a state of mind, whether it's thinking that this state of mind isn't enough and I need to experience experience something different than this. So there's a feeling of poverty within the heart, a feeling of lack within the heart, missing something. So the response is to reach out and try to get something. And it can feel quite unpleasant because it's so frustrating. The heart feels frustrated. It can't get what it wants because it's so enveloped in the wanting itself. So we can experience this emptiness, we can experience this ache. And this is actually a good way to work with desire, to experience the unpleasantness of it when it feels this way, to go back inside of the heart and experience the sense of poverty itself, the sense that this isn't enough, that I need something else outside of me to make me happy. Experiencing this ache or this emptiness is what unraveling desire is about. Sometimes it feels very pleasant. The mind is just enveloped in a whole lot of different thoughts, really um, wonderful thoughts. And it's not that one even wants to have what one is thinking about, but one wants to think. One wants to continue to go from thought to thought, thinking about what one wants. There's something that can be quite satisfying in that. So it can feel quite pleasant, and we need to ask, why not just loll around in pleasant thoughts? It certainly seems very enticing in the moment. Why go back to the breath and be with this object that seems nowhere near as exciting as these seemingly satisfying thoughts. So I think that 
understanding is another key to desire. To understand more and more deeply how much we cheat ourselves when we continually lull around, lull around in pleasant thoughts. How there's something that, as pleasant as the thoughts may be, something more, something deeper inside that we can only contact if we're willing to let the thoughts go. It's only possible to contact this deeper happiness or access this, this deeper satisfaction that's not dependent on anything external. This happiness in which the source is inside. Sometimes it comes down to that old phrase, having your cake, wanting to have your cake and eat it too. That if we're getting lost or willingly getting lost because many times we just can't control it and that's just the way it is. But when we have a chance and feel that pull to go into something, something that seems satisfying over and over again, that's when we may see that when there is that choice, the possibility of letting go of it also brings us more into contact with something deeper. That both can't be happening at the same time. So there has to be a letting go in order to access the deeper satisfaction. We don't have to see this with any kind of blame or any kind of judgment because it's just a force in nature. It's just the way the mind is. And if we condemn it and say that this is bad, it's just entangling ourselves more. So it's really just to understand the force of this energy and the nature of this energy. Sometimes a good antidote to desire is the sword of wisdom. And one has to be very, very careful with this sword because it's not violent. It's not something that is aggressive and has aversion in it. A less dramatic way, perhaps, of talking about this sword of wisdom is guarding the sense doors. And what I mean by that is when something has come up over and over again for the hundredth millionth time and you already know the story, you already know the ending of the story, you've gone through it many, many times. You know, you could, you just are thoroughly uh, an expert on this particular story. That may be the time to take out the Sword of Wisdom and just say, stop. I'm not going to go into it again. It's a gentle kind of thing. It's not in any way harsh or violent um, because it's just a guarding of the mind. 
It's a guarding of the mind with the mind. And just simply saying, enough. Do I have to go into this again? Sometimes we do. And no blame when we do. Sometimes the force and the pull is so strong that we're just swept up into it. And that's just the way it is. Sometimes there is a choice. If it's that same old story that we know very, very well, sometimes we can catch it before we go off into it. The first sentence, he said, or she said, (laughs) and we have a chance. Right in that moment, we have a chance to not go into it again. And to take that chance to choose to not go into it again is guarding the sense doors using the sword of wisdom skillfully. Sword by itself doesn't count, doesn't work, because a sword by itself is violent and forceful. But the sword of wisdom is great power. Another energy that we might come in contact with might have come in contact with, and if we haven't, we sure will by the end of this week, is that of aversion. And this means very tiny kind of annoyance or irritation, uh, frustration, and it moves into jealousy and competitiveness. And it also moves into rage and a real strong anger about something or another, or not about something or another. It can just be, once again, like desire, it can just be the energy of aversion that one is experiencing. That it doesn't have a particular object. It's a very uh, wide, pervasive kind of force. It can really touch, when aversion is there, whatever is happening, we sometimes tend to feel irritated at. Something that makes sense and something that may not make a whole lot of sense. It tends to touch everything. So it can touch different objects, it can touch people, it can touch situations. Whether it's directed inwardly or outwardly doesn't much matter. It's the same energy of aversion. So if it's directed at a situation, or an object, or a person, it's the same thing as being directed at one's own mind, one's own thoughts, angry at one's own thoughts, aversion towards one's feelings, emotions, uh, physical, bodily states. It's the same energy. And so we can see it, we can name it, we can acknowledge it as aversion, as what it is. We can notice also, as well as the aversion or the anger, we can also notice what else is there. In other words, what's coming up with the aversion. Just noticing aversion alone isn't enough. But to notice if there's any kind of rationalization or justification, I should feel angry about this or that, that's as important as seeing the aversion. It never stands on its own. Always there's something else in there. 
So it's, it's a case of exploring the mind in a very big way and noticing what is there along with aversion. Is there self-righteousness? Is there justification and, and rationalizing it? Sometimes we find ourselves analyzing aversion and possibly this is a distraction because it takes us away from the actual feeling to be analyzing and thinking about it. It takes us back into the endless conversations inside of the mind. One way to work with aversion, to work with anger, is to feel it in the body. It's very, very easy to get caught up in the thoughts about it because it's such a powerful force that it's very easy to just get swept up into it. But to work with it within the body is a very real way of working with it. In no way is it repressing it to work with it in the body. It's just working with it in a more handleable way. So noticing it in the hands, noticing it in the face, noticing perhaps a heat in the body, or how the breath changes, how the heart starts to beat. Whatever it's doing in the body, it's a very good place, a very good vehicle, a very good way to work with anger. Working with it in the body is also very helpful because it allows us to get close to it. Um, in aversion, there's a natural pushing away that's happening. The energy is that of pushing away. That's what aversion is. It's trying to get rid of something, trying to get something out of your mind, out of our lives. And so, in some way, we want to try to get closer to it, to get to know it, to get intimate with it. And being with it in the body is a good way to do that. Sometimes we get carried away and there's this thing of, of trying to marry it or you know, get real close to it. And this is certainly going overboard. We don't have to get that close. But to get to know it somehow, somehow to um, see what it is, to get close enough to investigate it. And a traditional um, antidote to anger is working with metta. Metta means loving kindness and will be working with um, a particular metta meditation in a few days. But just before that time, if you're not familiar with the practice, it has to do with sending thoughts of loving kindness um, to yourself or to the person you're angry with. It's quite interesting. There was uh, someone a number of years ago, an older woman, who um, was very, very upset with her mother. And her mother, obviously, was if she was older, her mother was a lot older. And her mother was close to dying. And she tried to work with Vipassana, and she was not able to at all. She couldn't get close to it at all. Because every time she tried to be with the breath, her mind would go immediately into all this really red-hot anger. And so she was put on the metta practice for a while. And she did it for a while. She did it probably for two or three years, quite a long time. And at the end of the two or three years, she was able to make peace with her mother before her mother died. 
It's not that it turned into a great love affair or anything like that, because there really was reason for the woman to be angry. Her mother was not such a hot mother. But she was able to make peace around it, and at that point to work more with a Vipassana practice. In other words, this rage was so strong that there was no room for investigation or examination possible in it because it was so hot. And so she cooled it down a bit by using the metta practice. And then she was able to actually investigate the anger itself. And um, one wonderful outcome was being able to work a bit with her mother before she wasn't able to have the chance to do so. Another of these energies is sleepiness. And this is a heaviness or a sinking feeling. You can feel it in the body, the body sinking, becoming very heavy. And you can feel it in the mind, the mind starting to get small, starting to shrink. It's, it's a very constricted kind of feeling. I'm sure I don't need to really go into it much because all of us are probably experts by now about it. It's a, a fogginess or a, a cloudiness. It can be very, very pleasant. It can be a good way to just get through a sitting. So one needs to be aware of that. And if that's so, it's very helpful to just make the effort to stand up. If there's that pleasant kind of, uh, the bell will ring sooner if I continue with this. It's very helpful to make some kind of effort, get some energy going somehow, just to counteract this kind of pleasantness. Because it's the same thing as desire. It, it may be very pleasant, but it's not going to get us anywhere. Sometimes it can feel very unpleasant. And when it does, there is bound to be aversion mixed up in it. And so one needs to look at the aversion, at the reaction to it, at the fact that one doesn't want to be sleepy. Maybe it's embarrassing. Maybe one has an image about oneself as a meditator and one shouldn't be sleeping right now. One's chin shouldn't be knocking on the ground right now. <laughs> Looks really bad. So aversion occurs. The mind gets very tight and constricted around the sleepiness and we get into a big struggle with it. And one can notice that when there is that struggle happening, we just poop ourselves out more. We just get tireder. We just get more tired when the mind begins to fight against the sleepiness. So it's more a case of seeing it clearly, of experiencing it, and of making a distinction between the body, the sleepiness in the body and the sleepiness in the mind. They're quite different, and we tend to get mixed up between the two. So to see if you can see the difference can help quite a bit. In the body, to experience it behind the eyes, how the eyes feel, how the face feels, how the legs feel, and just that overall sense of heaviness, that aura of heaviness within the body. In the mind, it's, it's that kind of cloudiness or fogginess where you just can't quite focus. It's not the same as desire. 
it's um, it's when the mind is just very very spacey. And it's helpful to check if you've had enough sleep or if you've come right now, if you've come to this retreat not having had enough sleep, having lived life in a very busy way and not having slept enough, just to check on on practical things like that. To check and see if you overate and um, if that's chronic, if there's a chronic overeating and that's causing the sleepiness. Perhaps particular kinds of foods because foods react differently in the body. They are sedatives and they're also stimulants. And there aren't, it's not the same for everyone. Um, Everybody's body is different, so stimulants may act as a sedative on some people in the opposite way. But find out, this is all part of practice. Find out how your mind is affected by what you put in your body. And sometimes you can notice sleepiness as Um, an avoidance. You know, one might suspect that some avoiding is going on if you've had definitely enough sleep and you know that, maybe too much sleep, and you're still falling asleep every time you sit on the cushion. The head begins to nod. So perhaps in that case there is some kind of avoidance going on. If there is, if if you do suspect this, um, you really can't do anything about it in terms of trying to find out what you're avoiding. It's really just a case of being very clearly with what is happening. This is our practice, being clearly with what is happening in the moment. So even if one suspects this, to be clearly with the sleepiness is practice. Now there are particular antidotes to this. One traditional one is walking among tigers. I thought I'd throw it out just so you'd have this in your information. <laughs> but we're not into that here. Um, we don't have any tigers. And also, it doesn't have to be that violent a practice. <laughs> so other things might be uh, putting cold water on your face. Or cold water is quite good, actually. It helps, it helps a lot, just a splash of cold water. It's gotten me out of tight spots. And standing up, which I mentioned before. Walking very quickly can help. If you're, if you're really that tired where the walking's slow, you're kind of um, losing balance. Uh, walking very quickly is a good way to work. And also walking slow can be very good because if you have to take very tiny steps and go very slowly, it can naturally wake up the mind. It might be slow, but it, it can naturally wake up the mind. And the last energy is that of doubt, the experiencing of indecisiveness or confusion in the mind. Feeling that you can't commit yourself, this kind of paralyzing uncertainty, being kind of a feeling of being on a wall and not knowing which side to come down on. So the mind feeling constricted and paralyzed and uncertain. I don't know if this practice is for me, and even if it is for me, I don't know if I can do it. So doubts about the practice and doubts about your own ability, lack of confidence. In doubt, 
often the mind just spins around, just kind of feels like a top, one of those tops. It just spins and spins. And it's helpful to see if you can step outside the spinning. The way to do this is by watching doubt. And watching doubt meaning watching the thoughts and seeing them as just thoughts. This is not the same as um, what might be called the juice of practice, which is uh, looking at everything, looking at existence in a doubtful way, and asking the question, who am I, and what am I doing here, and vital questions like this. Uh, The kind of doubt that I'm speaking about now is draining, doesn't let us get anywhere because we're um, lost in a whole lot of questions. One way to work with doubt is to ask questions. This is always a good way to work with it. But if you find that you have kind of the uh, 1,010 questions, you know, in other words, that's the tendency of the mind, this and that, and what does this mean and what does that mean, and that's what the mind is doing all the time, then just observing the doubt as thoughts is very helpful, just to see it come in and go out and come in and go out and come in and go out, and that's it. You know, not to believe it so much. See if, if there can be a suspension of belief. In working with all of these energies, effort is necessary, of course. And effort really is formless. There really isn't anything anyone can say in an external way. It's something that has to come from within. It's not something that can be imposed. It's not something that's authoritative. So it's a nurturing inside of that which wishes to practice, that which really wants to do the practice. It's not an effort to change anything. It's not the effort to try to get rid of anything. It's an effort to be very fully with that which is happening. It's an effort to get behind the activity in the mind. The mind can do whatever it wants. And right effort has to do with standing back, getting behind it, and just observing it, just watching it, whatever it is that's occurring. Sometimes an um, example is used of effort as learning how to ride the waves, you know, with a surfboard, just learning how to ride them rather than, than um, sinking. However, sometimes we do fall off and we feel like we're drowning. We fall actually into the water and there's the experience of drowning. And this happens to us, this is a reality. Right effort, when there is that feeling of being overwhelmed and drowning, right effort is learning how to not flail about and waste energy, how to not panic about it, but just to be with what is happening, to fully be with drowning, if that's what's going on, and to get to know that state of mind. It's something that all of us as yogis experience or will experience 
have experienced or will experience or are experiencing. And so to get to know that state of mind is extraordinarily helpful, is essential. It's kind of a case of lifting the mind up when um, you don't want to. Lifting the mind a bit and getting underneath whatever it is that's happening. When there isn't joy and when there isn't energy in the mind, to be fully with the resistance itself, to be awake and aware of not wanting to be present. So it's not trying to attain any particular state, trying to get anywhere. Um, This is not what I've heard practice is, and I want all those wonderful states of bliss and joy that are being talked about. That's not practice. Practice is being exactly with that which is going on, fully aware in the present of whatever it is that's happening. And also just to remember that the form of practice is challenging. To work with the sitting, to work with the walking, to work with the schedule, to work with the silence and the aloneness and perhaps the loneliness that comes along with that is challenging. And so to remember that, that it's challenging and that it is often not an easy thing to do, this process of confronting oneself, of getting to know ourselves. And at the same time to remember that the mind is extremely moldable, that if we consistently just look at whatever it is that's happening, just look, not try to change it, not try to push it away, not try to get involved in it, just aware, wakeful in the moment, the mind begins to shift on its own. The transformation happens on its own through the awareness, through the power of awareness. And what we can see is that inside of each one of these different energies that I've been speaking about is the opposite. Inside of desire, really fully experiencing desire as desire, not going off into the thoughts, but experiencing the energy itself, there is contentment. The other side of desire is contentment and, and is um, the opportunity to deepen our understanding. In anger, the other side of this is compassion. In fully experiencing anger, we have a chance or an opportunity to see our limitations to see what it is that irritates us, that annoys us, that, that causes anger to arise, and to fully explore the power of anger. And in doing so, coming to compassion, the pearl inside is compassion. Inside of sleep, fully experiencing sleep without pushing it away and without getting into it is wakefulness and vitality and the accessing of all kinds of energy within the body. With doubt, faith and confidence arise. The possibility of faith and confidence. 
There's one other energy that I neglected to mention, which is that of restlessness and worry. The mind and the body being very um, agitated. Feeling like you can't sit. Feeling that you just want to get up and run around the room or run out of the building. (laughs) Sometimes this happens. Uh, I've actually never heard of anybody actually doing that, but it can happen, I'm sure. Um, And a feeling in the mind, the mind having a lot of remorse perhaps about things that that you've done in the past and worried about what might happen in the future because of things that were done in the past. Again, this may or may not have a particular object. It may be experienced around something or another, but it may just feel like this extremely restless energy running through the body and running through the mind. An obsessive kind of feeling. It's much more obsessive than sleepiness is. And it's very definitely unpleasant. There's there's not pleasantness involved in restlessness, and one really generally wants to get away from it. Many times it's because we're accessing new levels of energy through the practice of mindfulness. And we just don't feel able to take it all in or to experience it all in the organism. Just to allow this energy to be felt is very helpful. Just to allow it to be experienced, to give it a lot of room to experience it in the body once again, is very, very helpful. And in this experiencing, trying to relax into it, trying to relax into something that is very unrelaxing, that's the challenge in restfulness, in in restlessness, is trying to rest within the restlessness itself. Sometimes you can work with counting, just counting from one to ten. In other words, being very, very focused staying with the breath in in an impeccable way, sometimes doing the counting can help. And to stay motionless is another really good idea, just to keep the body very still, because restlessness gets exacerbated when there's any kind of movement. It kind of feeds into the movement and gets worse. So it may feel quite difficult to stay still um, when you have a really heavy case of restlessness visiting you. But to stay motionless anyhow is a very, very helpful way to actually work one's way through it. Okay, I'd like to just end with a quote by Ajahn Chah, which has to do with effort. It's called Letting the Tree Grow. The Buddha taught that with things that come about of their own, once you have done your work, you can leave the results to nature, to the power of your accumulated karma. Yet your exertion of effort should not cease. Whether the fruit of wisdom comes quickly or slowly, you cannot force it, just as you cannot force the growth of a tree you have planted. The tree has its own pace. Your job is to dig a hole, water, and fertilize it, and protect it from insects. That much is your affair, a matter of faith. But the way the tree grows is up to the tree. If you practice like this, you can be sure all will be well and your plant will grow. Thus, you must understand the difference between your work and the plant's work. Leave the plant's business to the plant 
and be responsible for your own. If the mind does not know what it needs to do, it will try to force the plant to grow and flower and give fruit in one day. This is wrong view, a major cause of suffering. Just practice in the right direction and leave the rest to your karma. Then, whether it takes one or 100 or 1,000 lifetimes, your practice will be at peace. Okay, let's just sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.